Okay, so I'm just curious. How many of you have seen this movie? Us, yeah. <laughs> how, okay, how many of you have seen it more than once? Me either. Uh, <laughs> if this is your first Sunday with us, thanks for being here. Uh, we're in this series called Summer at the Movies. This is the last Sunday of it. And uh, uh, by the way, I'm Mike. Tuttle, I'm the lead pastor here at MCC, and if you're joining us online, thanks for watching, and I hope you'll join us here in the big room uh, sometime soon. Uh, so we've been looking at movies this summer in the month of June just to try to see, you know, and, and drawing out biblical truths, and so today we're looking at Infinity War, and just so you know, the 19th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, been waiting a long time to say that, Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it holds the distinction of becoming the fastest film in history to reach $1 billion. It took 11 days, and the film made 11, or made a billion dollars in 11 days, and for those who are concerned, the sequel be, is set to be released May 3rd next year. But to date, and I, so I wanted to look this up so that you can see it too, this isn't even the total anymore. Worldwide, the total is $2,023,800,191. As of this morning, so uh, which I think is kind of impressive. The movie, if you haven't seen it, pits the Avengers against Thanos, uh, who's the bad guy, and uh, he wants to have the ability to destroy half of all life in the universe. That's all I'm going to tell you about the film. <sighs> okay. I have to bring myself down just a little bit after seeing the picture and everything. Hey, I don't know if you caught this at the beginning of the trailer or not, but the words. There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if we could become something more so that when they needed us, we could fight the battles that they never could. There's our message. For us in the church, are you ready? This is on your notes. If you don't, uh, if you don't have the Bible app on your phone, we'll encourage you to get that. Our notes are there as well. If you go to the events tab on the YouVersion Bible app, uh, you'll find all of this. But here's the thing for us today. As the church, we can do together what we can't do as individuals. We can do, as the church, we're able to do together what we are unable to accomplish as individuals. Which, by the way, please don't think I'm discounting what we can do as individuals. I'm not saying we can't do anything. What I'm saying is, together, together, when we all point our energies in one direction, we can do more. Which is interesting, so important, this idea is so important that Jesus prayed about it the night before he died. If you want to know what was on his mind the night before he was crucified for our sins, Jesus is in the garden, and this is part of what we call the priestly prayer. We find it in John chapter 17. So Jesus is praying, my prayer is not for them alone, talking about the 11, his 11 followers who are, by the way, with him in the garden, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. By the way, who is it that has believed in Jesus because of the message of the apostles? It'd be us, right? Yeah, in this room. So he's talking about, talking about them, talking about us, uh, even today, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I and them, you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Because when they are brought to complete unity, 
Look at what happens. The world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Then the world will know. That's when the world will know. When this happens, this will be the sign to the world that God has sent Jesus and that he loves them. I just want to say this is huge for us today because the Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ. As imperfect as we are, when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he says that the church is to be his body. His, Jesus is represented. We are his representation on earth. In Ephesians chapter 3, it says that God's plan all along, from the very beginning, it has always been his plan that the church would be the vehicle for reaching the world on his behalf. It's always been his plan for us to be that vehicle. I just want you to catch how important that is. He chose us. We are his plan. You and me, it's, we are his plan. So as the Avengers recognize their need uh, for unity to save the comic book world, God has told us that we need unity to save the real world. So this is the thing for this morning. This movie reminds us that unity in the church is worth fighting for. If there's ever going to be a fight in the church, it needs to be about one of the things it needs to be about is unity. And there's a lot of fights that go on in churches around the world. And, and I don't know if you've ever heard of any of them, ever been part of any of them. I mean, some of the fights that divide churches around the world are over the color of the carpet in the worship area. It's the songs that we sing. It's the version of the Bible that we use. It's how we baptize people. Do we do it forward? Do we do it backward? Is it one time? Is it three times? But we ought, listen, there's a ton of things that we fight over. But one of the things we ought to be fighting for, if we're going to fight despite our differences, is unity. Because Jesus said, when we are able to get past our differences, there's something else drawing us together. If there's something bigger than what I want and what you want drawing us together, that's how the world, that's the proof. That tells the world that God loves them and sent his son for them. You know, the church has struggled with unity since it began. And so we're going to look at a letter that, uh, part of a letter that Paul wrote to a church in a town called Corinth, must have had quite a problem with unity because it is the very first thing Paul talks about to them after this, you know, after the greetings, the opening, you know, you know, what, what appears at the beginning of all letters. This is the very first thing that Paul talks to them about. And he knows this church because he started the church and it's in the city of Corinth, which is kind of a big deal back in the day, first century. Think uh, in terms of Las Vegas or New York City, uh, L.A., that kind of, uh, you know, important kind of place. But the temptations and lifestyle in the culture of that city had begun to influence the church rather than the church influencing the culture. So when they took, when they took their eyes off the things that matter most, that's what began to happen, just like it happens today in the church, right? When we take our eyes off of what matters the most then things begin to fall apart. Paul receives reports from some friends that he has back in Corinth telling him what's going on, and the church has sent some letters to Paul asking him questions. Hey, this is going on. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And so First and Second Corinthians, in case you've never read them, uh, they are his responses to these questions and to some of the concerns that have been raised. So check this out. Verse 10, chapter 1, so we skip the salutation, we go straight to it. 
Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So right, right off the bat, here's what Paul's telling us, and I want to make sure you get it. There has to be unity in the church. There has to be unity. It is essential to the success of God's kingdom that there be unity. Listen, unity in any organization is important on ball teams, in businesses, in, in all that. But in the church, there are eternal ramifications about our unity. And it's so important. That's why Paul wrote uh, to them, I appeal to you. Brothers, I am appealing. When you read this letter to the church in Corinth, you're going to see there are a number of different things that are causing division. But he's going to use this phrase, brothers and sisters. I mean, he's begging them. Brothers and sisters. And he uses that throughout the book because he wants them to understand this is the relationship that we ought to have, the type of spirit we ought to have inside the church. We need to agree with one another. And what we say, there need to be no divisions among us. We need to be perfectly united in mind and thought. In verse 12, uh, he says, um, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another one says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Does anyone know who this is, by the way? That's Peter. So that's just another name for Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. In this large and diverse Corinthian church, the believers favored different preachers. That's, that's because there was, as of yet, no written New Testament. So the believers depended heavily uh, on the preaching and teaching for spiritual insight into what the Old Testament was saying and how that applied to what Jesus had said here on earth. So they're, they're really, they, they depend heavily on them. And part of what was happening was people were playing these games of this is my favorite preacher or this is my favorite leader. Uh, in the church. Some people like it this way. Some people like it that way. Some people followed Paul, who founded the church. Others followed Peter, who was a big leader in the church in Jerusalem. Some followed Apollos, who was this eloquent and popular preacher who had this dynamic ministry in Corinth. And although all three of them, their messages all were united, what, what happened was their personalities attracted different kinds of people. And so what Paul does, and I don't know if you notice it, 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 he mentions Jesus' name 10 times in the first 10 verses. That's to make crystal clear to everyone reading that God's message is way more important than the messenger. His message is way more important than the vehicle with which it is presented. Here's what I want you to note about this division that's taking place in the Corinthian church. I think it's on your notes. It is not a biblical issue that divided them. If this had been a biblical issue, Paul would not have pleaded for unity because unity should never come at the sacrifice of doctrinal purity. You never sacrifice a biblical truth so that you can have unity. And he doesn't try to get them to think all alike on these issues. He doesn't present this argument so that they can all think the same way about the leadership or the preaching. But look at what he does do in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was I crucified for you? Were you baptized into my name? As a matter of fact, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, that's right. I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I honestly can't remember if I baptized anyone. He's kind of having, you know, one of these moments. Uh, uh, verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, 
lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul wants them all to come together and be united. And how do you do that when there's so many differences that exist in the church? How in the world do you ever get unity? You know, there's a class that I teach here called First Step. If you've never taken it, by the way, I... I hope you'll join me uh, in the next one. There's usually 10 to 20 of us uh, in the class when we meet. And part of what we do is we go around the table and we just give a synopsis of our story. And I'll tell you, it's one of the favorite things. I love doing that. I love sitting down and just hearing people talk about who they are and where they're from and what they've experienced. And it's interesting to me that here at MCC, we have people who represent their background, represents every denomination you can think of from Presbyterian to Lutheran to United Methodist to, to Nazarene to Catholic to nothing. They've had no, no background, no church background whatsoever. And they go around the table and they tell their story. And as you're listening, you've got to be thinking to yourself, what in the world? What do they have in common? I mean, what, how can we all be in the same place? They have nothing in common. But we have everything in common because of one thing that's true of all of us in the room. And that is that Jesus died for our sins. And we have accepted his grace in our lives. So here's the thing. If we're going to fight for unity, the thing we have to focus on is Jesus. We have to keep our eyes on the one who brings us together. Listen, it's okay if we have different preferences. It's okay if we have different opinions. The church should be the one place on earth where people who could not be more different, the people who have no natural or obvious reason to associate with each other, are drawn together because of Jesus, because that's what he does. He draws people who couldn't, they're not even anywhere near alike, but he pulls them together. They can still be united because of the grace that they have found. Part of the power of the cross is that it unites very different people. And so unity begins to happen in the church when we take our eyes off of ourselves and we put it on Jesus and who he is. And I want you to note this, it's not that there won't be any differences. This is in your notes. Really important. It's not that there won't be differences. There just won't be divisions. We, it's okay to have differences. We just want to make sure we don't have divisions. As a matter of fact, when we talk about who we want to be here at MCC, we say that our uh, vision is to be a diverse community of Christ followers. We want to be different from each other. We want people. Listen, this should be the kind of place where it doesn't make any difference how much money you make or don't make. It shouldn't make any difference where you're from, your nationality, the color of your skin. It shouldn't matter if you like older hymns or newer courses. It shouldn't matter if you like the KJ, KJV, the NIV, or the ESV. It shouldn't matter if you wear a suit or blue jeans. Because as someone put it, and I hope we can hold on to this, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's what's important. We're all standing at the cross. Verse 13, Paul immediately points to Jesus. He says, is Christ divided? Was I crucified for you? Were you baptized into my name? In other words, it's not me. It's not about me. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Peter who saved you. Why are you making this about us? Jesus is the one who died to save your sins. He's the one who saved you for all eternity. And since you have this one, th we all have this one thing in common. Do all these other things really matter? Are they really that important? And that's what the church is supposed to look like. A group of people who do not have a lot in common, but we have this one incredibly powerful thing that draws us all together because of what we've received in Christ. And here's what Paul does here. He doesn't try to get them to think alike on these secondary issues, but he gets them to focus on the one thing that matters. Look at what he writes in chapter 2. 
And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message, my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. So Paul is saying to them, listen, anything that you found impressive about me, it's not me. This this isn't about me, it's about Jesus. And so in verse 5, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. He's trying to take the spotlight off of himself, and he puts it where it belongs, on Jesus. And I want to make sure you catch this. This isn't a matter of immorality. He's not addressing an issue of immorality. As a matter of fact, he does address an issue of immorality in chapter 5. So if you've never read it, uh, the book, you're going to read chapter 5 and go, holy cow, that was happening in the church. There's some immoral behavior taking place in the church, and Paul doesn't say, hey, just pretend. Let's, Let's pretend it doesn't matter. Let's pretend it's not happening so that we can all be unified. He wouldn't do that. That's this, this, what we're talking about is a matter of preference. It's not a biblical issue. It's a matter of preference, which, by the way, tends to be the most divisive issues in the church today. There was a study of more than 400 churches and researchers were trying to determine, so they asked this question, what are the most divisive issues in our church? Most divisive issues in our church. 400 churches were asked this, and in these 400 churches, they found out that the number one, so think about this, if you had to name, don't say it out loud, but think in your head, if, if you had to name the number one most divisive issue in the church today, don't say it out loud, just think it. But if you had the number one most divisive issue in the body of Christ, what do you think it would be? Don't say it out loud. Music. What kind of music are we going to sing? Number one most divisive issue. Number two, the minister's leadership style. Third most divisive was the use of finances. You just keep going down the list. Things like, how is the church going to be decorated? What's the color on the wall? What's the carpet on the floor? What do you wear to worship? What's okay to wear to worship? These are all on this list. And can I tell you, listen, most of them aren't even in the Bible. The Bible doesn't even talk about those things. But we have taken these opinions and we've taken and we've made them sacred. And again, the Bible, they're matters of opinion and preference. The Bible doesn't say anything about any of those, but they can be the most divisive issues in the church. And to be clear, Paul's not talking about uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. Uniformity is when you have a lot of people who are kind of alike. They're all about the same age. They dress the same way. They have this, like the same kind of music. They prefer the same type of teaching. We're not looking to be a place of uniformity. We're looking to be a place of unity because that's the church. Unity by definition, means there's diversity. Unity means you have to be coming together around something more. So we don't want to be a place of uniformity. We want to be a place where, of unity where people who are completely different from each other, different preferences, but we come together because Jesus is just that great. And it tells the world something. Check this out. Also in your notes, if I'm going to fight for unity, I have to stand on his wisdom. I can't use my own wisdom. 
It's not going to get me there. Paul makes it clear uh, when he taught this church in Corinth, he wasn't giving his own opinion. He wasn't just uh, expressing commentary from what was going on in his head, but he was teaching them the wisdom of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 says, this is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. We have committed, as if this is your first time here or if you're kind of new to MCC and you're wondering who we are, we are, listen, we have committed as a church to stand on the Word of God as the foundation of everything that we say and do. And we do that unapologetically. We will say what the Bible says. And can I tell you, sometimes that's not popular. Sometimes in our culture, it's going to be uncomfortable. But when Paul writes to his spiritual son, Timothy, and he says, all scripture is God-breathed. It's all inspired by God. We believe that. And so we will not back down. We will teach that. So when our core value of biblical truth, the Bible is as true today just as it was last week, last year, last century, we're going to look for new ways to engage these timeless truths. If you're wondering why we're doing a movie, Summer at the Movie series, we're just engaging these timeless truths in a new way. Paul says in verse 14, some people think of God's wisdom as foolish. Also could be translated silly. They think it's silly that you would look to a book of teachings thousands of years old to determine the direction of your life and to determine the rightness and wrongness of issues that our culture has very strong opinions about. They think it's silly. They walked into this room this morning. They, think it, they would think it's silly that we would even be talking about this. But we believe that this is God's word. And we look to this for what unifies us, not a, not opinions, not perspective. It is the word of God. If one person thinks this and another person thinks that, we look to God's word to find out what it says because that determines where we will stand. The Bible is what unites us. Here's one more thing I want to make sure you catch. If we're going to do this, we're going to have to have humility. Chapter 3, again, Paul's talking about this all the way through the book. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So Paul models for the church what he's talking about that helps with unity. Because what he says is the spirit of humility. It's not what I did. It's not what I did that made the seed grow. It's, look, it's not what Apollos did that made the seed grow. God worked through us. It's God who's making the seed grow. And if you have division in the church, if you have division in your family, if you have division on your team, in your workplace, anywhere you have division, at the heart of that division is self-promotion. It's a spirit of pride. It's pride that ultimately causes division. Think, I mean, think about what it is. Pride makes me selfish. It says, I deserve to get what I want. It puts my need ahead of others. It's, pride is argumentative. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, it says it only leads to arguments. And at some point, most disagreements and divisions are less about who's right and who's wrong, and it becomes about who's going to win. You ever experienced that? You know how I know that's true? That's how I play that game. After a while, it's less about what's right and what's wrong, who's right and who's wrong. It's just I'm going to win this argument that I'm in now uh, with you. 
Pride makes me defensive. Pride makes me prejudiced. It makes me intolerant of others. It makes me not want to be around people who are different from me. And so Paul demonstrates this spirit of humility. Again, because the church isn't a place of uniformity. It's, that's not what it's about. There is no testimony in that. A bunch of people who are exactly alike that get along, the world can do that. What the church can do that the world cannot do is have people who are so different from each other. Listen, it's a place of unity. It is the power of our testimony. It is the power of the cross. It tells people that God loves them. When people get together who pretty much have nothing in common except one thing, that we have all been saved by the grace of God by what Jesus did on the cross. He gave his very... Listen, he gave his life for the unity of the church. That was his prayer the night before he was crucified. That's what, this is what was on his mind. So listen, our guys who are going to be serving this morning, if you haven't already, if you'll move to the back, your next step in your faith is a question. So when you think about what your next step is from this morning and what we're talking about unity, here's the question. What sacrifice do you need to make in order for us to be united? What is this preference that you have? that you need to be able to say, you know what, but it's more, the cross is way more important than this preference of mine. Well, what is it that you have? What is it that you've got going on? What sacrifice do you need to make? What do you need to let go of so that as a church, we can be united around the cross of Jesus? Helen Keller said this, it's on your notes, alone we can do so little, together we can do so much. Alone we can do something. Together, Jesus said we can change the world together. There's a unity, not uniformity, a unity when different people come together. So when Paul would write to the church in Ephesus chapter 3, he says, I pray that you may have your roots and foundation in love so that you, together with all God's people, may have the power to understand how broad and long and high and deep Jesus' love is, so that together with all God's people, so that together we can understand how high and deep and wide and broad Jesus' love. And so each week we stop to remember. We, <laughs> you're never more than six days away. After today, you're six days away from stopping and remembering again what it is that unifies us. We stop to remember the cross because the cross tells us how broad and long and high and deep Jesus' love is for us. Because he gave his life for us. And it's the cross. The cross is how people who are so different from each other can come together and be unified. And I just want to remind you of what Jesus said again. He's praying to his father and he said, Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So in a moment you're going to hold in your hands these uh, emblems, symbols, that remind us of Jesus' body. The bread reminds us of his body. The juice reminds us of his blood given for us on the cross. He died for our sins, not his sins, our sins. That's the thing we all have in common. None of us is good enough without him. None of us is so bad we can't get in with him. We all have that in common. Jesus has offered all of us salvation. And so we hold these emblems that bring a room full of very different people all together under the banner of one name and what he did on our behalf. Let's go to him in prayer. God, we, we do come to you now.
And our prayer is even as we hold these emblems and as we take them, God, that we would be reminded it's not uh, how great we are, it's not how wonderful we are that allows us to be a church. We come together despite our brokenness. We come together despite our uh, sin struggles. Even that's different in this room. We struggle with different sins, but we all struggle with sin. And we all need your son's blood to cover those. That's what we have in common. And so, God, I pray, even now as we hold these emblems, as we are reminded one more time of what Jesus did on our behalf, God, that we would be one today because the world is depending on it. Help us to be the statement, just our being together, help that to be the statement that lets the world know that you sent Jesus and that you love them. And so, God, we pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.